0: Good morning! We're continuing our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to finish out the entire chapter, well, we're going to finish the last portion of the chapter, of chapter 13. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Now, I know for many of us, uh, it's hard to know what day it is at any given point, and so let this be your reminder today as you're watching this. It is Sunday, it is the Lord's Day, it is the day that we get to typically be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and worship the Lord, God willing, God willing. Uh, very, very soon we'll be able to do that again. In the meantime, we are going to be focusing on the same passage together this morning. We're going to be seeking God in His Word. We're going to be seeking to learn from Him. We're going to be seeking to be changed by God in His Holy Word. And uh, so we'll be doing that. Now, as a reminder, just as we're, we're picking up from uh, just a week ago now, but in case you've forgotten, uh, we were listening as Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a narrow door and was encouraging, telling uh, us to enter through that door, to enter through Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so then our next portion of the passage is, is where we're picking up today. And and unlike last week, this week, these these are the exact same moment. This is happening in that same conversation, the same event going on. Uh, Now, we're going to read it in two sections, just so you can keep it fresh in your mind as we get to it. Uh, And we're going to start off right off the bat. Let's just jump right in. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we know this is your word. And we know that it's possible for us to come to it and just learn facts about history, about Jesus. But Lord, we want to come to your word to know you better and to learn how to better love and to honor you. And we want to come so that we might learn how to better love our neighbors. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, please change us today from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what are we to make of this passage right here? What are we to make of this? Because on on the first level, you look at this and you're thinking, here are the Pharisees finally coming around, finally starting to see who Jesus is, finally getting on his side. And and they're showing some kindness to him. They come and they're warning him, hey, hey Jesus, don't stay here. Because Herod, right, the, the Roman ruler of this region, Herod wants to kill you, so you need to leave. You need to get away from here. And, and we know the death threat is real, right? Herod might make these, but remember, this is the same Herod that ended up killing John the Baptist, having him beheaded because uh, some woman actually danced pretty well, and this was the reward she asked for. So we know he's willing to kill someone, and it sounds like he's going after Jesus at this point. And, and so right here, it might be easy for us to think, wow, how, how touching this is. The, the Pharisees are actually looking out for Jesus. They're on the same side finally. Finally, they, they, they've come around and they've got his back. This is good. Well, it's good except for we, we know one little thing about the Pharisees. We know that everything we've ever seen from them before, every moment before, and the way that they interact with Jesus is completely contrary to this. And so maybe, maybe we should question the, why the Pharisees are warning Jesus. Because let's be honest, this is a lot like if, if Bellatrix Lestrange was, was coming and going to, to warn Harry Potter, hey, you need to get away from here because Lord Voldemort wants to kill you. Or, or maybe it's like if Bubba Fett, you know, comes and finds Han Solo, hey, Darth Vader wants to kill you, you need to get out of here. This is kind of the equivalent that we're talking about here. And, and, and so we know there is something more sinister going on than what it looks like on the surface. This is not someone's warning that you trust to be genuine. After all, Where did the Pharisees even get this information to begin with? Are are they talking to Herod? Have they been in discussion with Herod? Are they the reason Herod wants to kill them? And really, Jesus believes that's where they got it, right? That they're somehow talking to him because he tells them, take this message back to Herod as if that's where they've come from to begin with. Now, the most likely explanation that explains the sinister motives behind this is that they're wanting to warn Jesus here uh, because he is now close to where Herod lives, but that is also far from where the Pharisees have power, right? And so they want to, they want to drive him, they want to push him, they want to scare him back into to Judea or towards Judea where the Pharisees have more power over Jesus where they might be able to do something to him. And, and so then... As we see this interaction, as we think about Jesus' response, it's, it's good for us to know that as Christians, we are called to treat others with patience in our language, and the way we interact with them, to be graceful, to be kind in the, in the words that we use. And, and yet, there are actually times when we should be a little more aggressive. When we should be a little less gentle, a little less just endlessly patient with people. And now, be careful because I don't want us to define this on our own, right? I don't want you to think that, you know, whoever you've been locked in this house with lately, uh, you know, the, the roommate or whoever's in their house who refuses to do their dishes and leaves their dirty dishes out constantly, right? This is, this is not freeway, this is not giving you just a, a lead way to be as rude as you possibly want to them. You must still be patient. You must still be kind as you're encouraging them. Here's how we wash our dishes. I need you to do this. Things of that nature. In other words, we can't be rude just because we're frustrated or because someone annoys us. Right? Right? The situation, though, that calls for a less gentle response, the specific one we're talking about here is, is exactly what we see in this passage as, as Jesus is interacting with, with the Pharisee and ultimately with, with Herod as, as his message. Because when, when, someone is, when dealing with someone who is actively, intentionally leading others away from the gospel, that's not the time for us to be patient and, and understanding, I don't know, but have you, have you noticed that every time we see Jesus get salty, and I kind of love it when he gets salty, that probably says something wrong with me than anything else, but every time we see him get salty, it's with the Pharisees. There's something specific going on here. Because you remember, even back in, in Luke uh, 3, 7, when, when Jesus calls the Pharisees uh, a brood of vipers, right? That's an insult that he throws out of them. Or in John eight forty four where, where where Jesus calls them, hey, you're the children of the devil. That's not a compliment. Um, it, it's Jesus getting salty. And, and Jesus, you know, his issue with the Pharisees is this, that they've added to God's law. They have distorted the gospel, That's why he's so quick to get salty, right? Turning it from a a work of Christ and unmerited grace to a a work of self-righteous reward that that somehow they think they can earn it. And and so Jesus' response here is both to the Pharisee who he's speaking to and also to Herod who the message is. And and in both cases, it's a threat to what Jesus is trying to accomplish, salvation. Um, and, And so he is not soft. He is not gracious. In fact, Jesus calls Herod what? He says, uh, he calls him a fox. He says, go and tell that fox. I wish we could hear the tone, right, to, to see how Jesus says this. But you know, there's, uh, you know, just by the words there, we know that there's, there's some insult in that. And, and, and on some level, though, you might be thinking, I... I wouldn't mind being called a fox. That's not so bad, right? Because we know it as a, a term that means an attractive woman or a silver fox, right? A handsome older man. They, these are the kind of ways we might use the word fox. Well, those weren't terms that were used that way yet. Not, not in first century um, Israel slang at that time. You see, fox was nothing but an insult, Meaning someone who's sly, meaning someone who's evil, meaning someone who is just predatory, and that's what he's saying about Herod here. And and remember, Jesus is not just throwing it out like you and I might throw an insult. Jesus actually knows the hearts of people, and so when he says this about Herod, we know that he's absolutely right about Herod. And so then, what's the message for that fox? Well, um, this is the kind of response. If we're reading through scripture, if I'm honest, reading through just Bible in a year kind of reading, you're probably going to cruise right through it and not think much about it. But it is really worth digging into because it gives us a lot of information about who Jesus is, about the work he's doing, and the way he's doing that work. Now, the first thing that we see Jesus, uh, we see Jesus, first thing we see is that Jesus came to deliver people from the devil, right? Look at verse 32 right in front of you. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. That's what he's doing. And he says he's going to continue to do this, right? He's to, and he uses this phrase, uh, today, tomorrow, and the third day. And your mind probably immediately goes, oh, he's talking about the resurrection. Anytime we hear the third day, we think that. I know it sounds that way. That's not what he's talking about. This is actually uh, not about the resurrection. It's, it's a Hebraic idiom. It's a figure of speech that was common at the time. And it means just a short period of time. Here's what my plan is for the next little while. Uh, in other words, Jesus is saying, I have people to heal in this area. I have people to set free from the devil, and I'm going to continue to heal them and set them free for the next foreseeable future. And this is, you know, further bolstered at the end of verse 32 when he, when he says this. He says, I finish my course, right? It seems a little bit out of place there if you're looking at the text. Uh, but he says, I finish, I finish my course. Now, many of us start things we don't finish, we, we just do. How, how many of us have tried to learn an instrument? Either picking up a guitar or piano only to later quit because, well, that's hard work. Or how many of us have started a, a degree that ends up being left undone? Or how many of us have stacks of books in their house that are halfway read, right, uh, that you never finish? Or how many of us have house projects that you began at some point, you intended to finish, and you can't wait till it's done. And yet, long period after they've begun, they remain unfinished. Now, not with Jesus, though. Jesus is committed to finishing what he began, what he's been sent to do, and nothing, nothing is going to stop Jesus from completing his mission. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the old postal ad that, that states, neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor temporary loss of gravity, nor grumpy robots made of old washing machines, nor black holes that swallow the entire known universe, will keep the U.S. Postal Service from its appointed rounds. Nothing. Nothing. Now, the Postal Service has to worry about the Senate Budgetary Committee, but that's different. Jesus doesn't have to worry about that. Jesus is so committed then to every aspect of his mission, and and, and so here he's telling Herod, right, take this message to Herod, and you tell him, I'm going to keep healing, I'm going to keep preaching, I'm going to keep casting out demons, I'm going to keep bearing the burden of the sins of many until my work of salvation is complete. You You can be sure of that. Now... Do you, do you see in verse thirty two where Jesus says, "I finish my course? We don't speak that way, it's translated a little weird. <clears throat> the Greek literally means this. He says, "I will be finished. I finish my course. It's literally I will be finished." Now, do you remember what Jesus's last words on the cross are? But before he dies, before he's finished, that Jesus in John 1930 records it right? it is finished. The task is done. Everything he has set to complete is completed. That is what's going to happen. That's the finished work of Jesus on the cross and and his resurrection three days later. And and that's why we can have such assurance of our salvation, right? Because it's not an unfinished work. Jesus has already actually completed it. And, And so if you've trusted in Jesus, there is nothing else that you need to do. There's all kinds of things you can be doing there's all kinds of things you should be doing. There's all things you're going to want to do because of that change. But there's nothing else you have to do to be set free from the guilt, uh, uh, from, from guilt and punishment of your sin that is done. Now, there is another thing for us to notice in Jesus' response here. Jesus, in a sense, is, is saying this. He's saying, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I hear this message from Herod, but I'm invincible. Not basically invincible, but truly and absolutely completely invincible until it's time for me to die upon the cross. And, and, and he's not afraid of Herod. And I love that. He's not afraid of Herod because, because God is sovereign. That's why. And the same is absolutely true for for you and I, right? Our life is completely in the hands of God. Even if we're not aware of it, like Jesus says, moment by moment, it's an absolute truth, something we need to be more aware of. Now, now, now Jesus knows when his death will be. You and I, we do not know. And I think that's a grace of God that we don't know. Can you imagine having to carry that weight with you constantly? Uh, But anyway we we can still be calm in the midst of these threats and we can be calm because while, while the future is uncertain for us, we, we know that we are in the safe hands of God and the future is not uncertain for Him. We are always, always, we, we can trust in the good providence of God. Now, th- this week in Laura's reading, <clears throat> She's been reading this book by Jerry Bridges, and in God's good providence, she, she read an incredibly timely quote by the late, and I've already told you, his name's Jerry Bridges. Jerry, and Bridges says this, he says, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Nothing, even the smallest virus, escapes his care and control. And up until two months ago, we probably would have read over that and been like, "Huh, huh virus. Nothing escapes God's care and control. My, my son Beckham, uh, Beckham. you think I should pronounce his own name? Anyway, uh, anytime anyone says anything like, hey, good luck on that, or that was lucky that that happened, things like that nature, he always plainly responds, there's no such thing as luck. Uh, and really, it, it's annoying sometimes. Beckham, it's annoying sometimes. But, it, but it's also a great reminder that, that ultimately there, is, there are no accidents. None. For nothing at all is outside of the control of God. And, and that's why the only thing that, that a believer needs to have peace in this life is to have faith in Christ. Those things go together. We, we, we need to believe then the promises of God in his word. We need to believe promises like, like eight, uh, Romans 8.28, which says that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You truly, truly believe that. Not just memorize it, but believe it. And so then in verse 33, Jesus says he'll continue on his way. What's he mean by this, right? He, he has this this holy obligation uh, as we said before, to finish the salvation that he's accomplished. He's got to get to where he's going. Uh, Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And, and that's his point here. He's saying, I, I am going to die, but not here. Not by Herod. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And And then there's There's one more thing I want us to see in this section before we move on. Jesus knows his purpose in life. He's explaining his purpose in life here, right? It's a a continuation in in some some regard of what he stated way back in Luke 9, 22, uh, when he first really turns his direction towards Jerusalem and is ready to go that way. And he said, Then the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knows his purpose. Christian, do you know your purpose? I mean, question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is part of our, our doctrinal statement. If you've never read it, I'd really encourage you to take some time and, and go through this. But question one asks this, what is the chief end of man? Now, this is an old way of saying, um, what is your main purpose? Why do you exist? Why does man exist? Why do people exist? And, and uh, so, here's the answer it gives. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God And to enjoy him forever. Now, that doesn't tell us what job we should seek out in life. That doesn't tell us what our hobby should be. It doesn't tell us what man or woman we should marry. It does not tell us uh, what we should do on Tuesday evenings, but it does tell us how we're to do all of these things. We're to do it by glorifying God and enjoying God, right? So glorify God and enjoy God. Uh, in your job, in your relationships, in your hobbies. And, and yes, we are to glorify God and enjoy God in whatever it is we're doing on Tuesday evenings. These are all interconnected. Now, uh, the last word in verse 33, and we're about to move on to a new section, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and have it open to verse 34. Uh, but the last verse, uh, word in verse 33 is, is the word Jerusalem. And you can see it, and even though we can't hear the tone and everything that's going on, uh, it's not hard to see what's happening here. It's, it's like it triggers this deep, sentimental uh, aspect in Jesus. You know, listen to what he says in our night. Just listen to it. He says this. Uh, so, so he's just said, uh, you know, Jerusalem, and then he stops almost, and he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Now, when Jesus says here, Jerusalem, it's, it's not just the buildings, right? It's not that he likes the bagels they, they have in Jerusalem. It's not just the temple and the aesthetic beauty of it. it it's the people of the city. It, it's an absolute synonymous idea with the city. To, to love a city is to love the people that make up that city. And, and you can hear his love there, right? As he's repeating this word, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, there's eight other instances in Scripture with with the repeated name. The other instances are all to specific people, not not these general idea of a city like this. But uh, I'll list them for you. You have Abraham, Abraham, when God asked him to sacrifice his only son. You've got Jacob, Jacob, when Joseph learns that Jacob, his son, was not dead as he'd long believed, but was actually alive, and he's so excited about that. You have Moses, Moses, when God spoke to him from a burning bush. You've got Samuel, Samuel, when God calls him to be his prophet. Uh, you have Martha, Martha, when Jesus is teaching her to stop rushing and being so busy and to, to come find rest at his feet. You've got Simon, Simon, when Peter is told that he'll betray Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And you've got Saul, Saul, when Jesus encounters the future apostle as he's, you know, revealing to him, as the apostle is traveling to Damascus and Jesus is revealing, well, himself to Paul. And what his new life is going to be. And and finally, when Jesus is praying to God the Father on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In every single instance in Scripture, when you see these words repeated twice, right? A name repeated twice, and every time the significance here is the deep, deep intimacy. There's a love there. Doesn't matter what's coming next, there is a there's a love there. You see, Jesus intimately loves Jerusalem. He loves the people there, even many of whom are going to be rejecting him not too long in the future. You see, Jesus certainly knows the sin of the city. and In fact, he refers to it here as the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And here is Jesus, both sent to it and a prophet headed that direction. Or Nehemiah, right, had similar words for Jerusalem when he said, when he says to God, those in the city were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets. And the prophet Zechariah was actually killed. He was stoned to death in the, in the temple court using stones that were part of God's holy temple. Not the temple itself, but the ground. Anyway, um, there's some irony here that... that that true prophets of God are in most danger in, in the city that at this time is the center of, of worship to God. And that's where they find the most danger. What, what Jesus says here then is, is just this woeful lament. Do you know what that means, right? laments just this common biblical term. We use it all the time. I don't know if we always know what it means though. To lament is to have a passionate expression of sorrow or grief. It's, it's to feel it so much that it's, it physically even comes out of us that you can see it. And, and Jesus then uses an image that is so common in the scriptures the the image of a mother hen who, who, who takes her children under her wings to protect them. If you've ever seen an image of this, uh, of an actual, you know, chicken or other animal doing, or bird doing this, it's a pretty amazing image. Now, it's the image of Psalm 36, 7, which says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Jerusalem's unwillingness to to come under his wings of protection has filled Jesus with sorrow, understandably. Now, there are three significant observations to to make here. And the first one's this. Jesus Jesus is not merely finishing the work he came to do he 's doing it with love, and that 's a huge difference a huge significance many many people are able to just put their head down and, and to work for someone while grumbling every step of the way you, you know this you 've seen this in your places of work because that 's often the way we work that 's often the way our coworkers work just grumbling about supervisors grumbling about bosses grumbling about customers or clients or whoever it might be and, and I know you 've seen this right you, and working hard working hard while complaining is is so different than Working for someone when you're filled with love with them for them, so different. Parents, I know you've seen this. I have. You, you you've seen when your children do chores or help with a project and they're full of bitterness or resentment and they don't want to do it and they're mad about it. Compared when they're serving with love, when they're enjoying it, when they're when they're finding just joy in doing that, it's a night and day difference. And when Jesus when when Jesus did the painful work of salvation for you. He wasn't grumbling, right? He wasn't grumbling about how Lance and, and Tony are non-contributing zeros to their salvation. He's, he, he wasn't bitter at Nicola and Peggy saying, saying in his heart, they're, they're not as appreciative as they should be for, for the redemption. I'm securing for them. Why? Well, they haven't even said thank you. No, Je- Jesus does it with love. He does it with love for Lance and for Tony and for Nicola and Peggy. He does it with love for every single one of us who have faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus did not go to the cross for a thank you. He, he goes because of love for his father and he goes because of love for his people. He's, he's redeeming. The second observation here is the compassion that Jesus has for sinners, some who are later going to be shouting for his crucifixion with that sort of hatred to, towards him. Um, this compassion of Jesus, I find very convicting to me, and maybe it will be for you as well. Jesus, because Jesus knows just how sinful the people of Jerusalem are. Jesus knows the crimes they've committed. Jesus knows the ways they've treated their families, the way they've treated others, the way they've been dishonest. He, he knows the lust and the bitterness that dwells in their hearts. He, he knows they are not good people. And, and he's not saying, you people are the worst Why can't you just be more like me? That's not what Jesus is saying here. No, he's he's filled with compassion for them. And I'm so, like, blown away from that. You know, because if that's how Jesus loves sinners, including me, including you, why do we so often respond with, with contempt, with with disgust in our hearts. I mean, be, be honest for a moment. I know we all want to think we don't, but be honest. When, when you see people who are in all, just outright rebellion against God, right? Corrupt politicians, drug dealers, gang members, drag queens, pro-choice advocates, crooked businessmen and women, whatever, add whatever you want to this list. When, when you see that, when you see people that are just unrepentant sinners, do you, do you just want to push them away as far as possible from you? right? What's going on in your heart? Do you ever just unmoved simply think of them? They, they just disgust me or, or I hope things go terrible for them since they're trying to, to do terrible things or, or something like that. How do you respond? And, and yet here we see Jesus longing to draw sinners under the protection of his wings, longing to see them come to him for salvation, and all I can think here is that we ask God to, to change you, right? To, to change us, to, to give us compassion towards lost sinners like Jesus models for us. So that instead of bitterness and contempt that we would, we, you know, let us view them as, as people who need Jesus like we need Jesus. And, and that we can view them as, as people who, who need to be redeemed by Jesus just like we are redeemed by Jesus. And, and some will be redeemed. It happens every day across the world, and, and we should rejoice in that. Someone hears the gospel, they, they, they learn of the cross, they learn of the empty tomb, and they're encouraged to believe on Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, and God redeems them, and, and they repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, and they're saved forever. Hallelujah, right? But sadly, others are going to refuse to come to Jesus always. Always. And that's the third observation I want us to see here. Jesus is willing, but Jerusalem is unwilling. That's the relationship. And and remember, last week Jesus compared salvation to the narrow door. It's it's not random that Jesus follows that up with these words here. That, you know, I I am willing, I am willing, but you are unwilling. Unwilling. Listen, our, our salvation is from God. There is no doubt about it. Only God's elect will be redeemed. However, it is, if we will go, sorry, however, if we will not go to God, it is completely upon us, on us. How that is so is somewhat of a mystery and, and it, it's bound to make your head dizzy, right? You're just to feel a little dizzy. But, but we have to understand that's an absolute biblical truth. That's how it works. And still, never doubt the Lord's willingness to save you. Do not doubt that. First Timothy 2.4 tells us God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's real. And so then, while Jesus speaks these words regarding first century Jerusalem, they're also words for us today. They are still for us. If you are watching this, hearing this, um, and you're still exploring who Jesus is, I want you to know this. Jesus is ready and willing to place his wings of protection over you. But you must go to Jesus believing in him with faith. Now, Philip Reichen here points out this. He says, if Jesus had compassion for the lost sinners of Jerusalem, then he has compassion for us. The invitation to come under his sheltering wing is offered to everyone without exception in all of life's troubles. Now, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, is is really wishing to be Uh, very clear, to put something in precise language uh, so that he can make sure that you understand that the offer of salvation, the gospel that we share with people when we do so, in light of election, is still a genuine, right? A real offer that, that is being given to them. And he words it this way. He says, there is a living Savior who, because he died and rose again, is sufficient to save you, and indeed each and every person who comes to him in faith. There is fullness of grace in Christ crucified, and you too may find salvation in his name. Jesus is willing. And so then, in our last verse, Jesus says their house is forsaken. There's a little bit of a change of direction here. Uh, It's consistent, but it's a change of direction. Jesus is, is declaring judgment, right? He's gone through the woefulness. My heart is broken. Because I want to gather you and you're unwilling. And because they're unwilling, he's now going to show that he's declaring this judgment. And, and notice he doesn't say at this point, God's house. Right? They thought of the city of Jerusalem, God's city. They thought of the temple as God's temple. And, and here he calls it their house, right? Your house. Uh, because God has forsaken it. He's not putting his claim on it at this point. He's, he's left them who are unwilling to come to him. Um, This prophecy is going to come true ultimately in 70 AD when both Jerusalem and the temple are just, are destroyed. Um, And so then when when Jesus says in verse 35, uh, at the very end of this passage, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that, that might sound a little weird to us because... If you're going through this and thinking through it, you're like, they're going to see him later today, right? They're, they're going to see him tomorrow as he continues the journey to Jerusalem. Um, so what's he talking about? And, and what he's talking about is a, a future down-the-way event <clears throat> what we call the second coming, when Christ re- returns again for us. And, and, and these words are, are quoted from the past, right? Psalm 118, 26. And, and the point is that at Christ's return, every single person will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. And, and so he's saying the next time you, you really see me for, for who I really am, it's going to come back at my second coming and, and you know who I am. You know that I am the Lord. Okay. And some are going to, at that moment, are going to see their faith fulfilled and they're going to say these words and others, learning that their sin and lack of faith in Christ condemns them, they're going to say these words but with great remorse. In a sense, this, this verse is this cosmic benediction. So let's finish up here. To those who don't know Christ, I ask you this. Are, are you willing to come to Jesus and place your faith in him and to find protection and to find rest under his wings. Are you? So to those who are, are Christians, I, I'll ask you this: are, are you willing to follow Jesus, you know the, the example of our Lord here, in, in the way that he has compassion on those who don't know Christ? that you know? Telling them, are we willing to, to, to tell them how willing Christ is to, to, to willing Christ is to redeem their life and their souls from death? And may we long for the day when Christ returns, when we can all say, we all will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, make us willing to come to you to find protection under your wings. Make us willing to follow you in suffering, knowing that the days of our lives are numbered and secured by you alone. Make us to be full of compassion for the lost who are just like us, except they don't have Christ. And may we live each day in the, in the purpose that you've given us, Lord. Whatever today looks like for us, would we go about glorifying you and would we go about finding true and real delight in you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.